Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen and Friends. If Watch With Jen is the studio track, this is the acoustic version. Today's guest is Grant Olding, a gifted, in-demand composer of film, television, theater, and dance scores. Tony-nominated and Drama Desk Award winner Grant Olding is often brought on board projects early on to help shape the narrative as well as craft the music. A man I first met on Twitter after I reviewed and was impressed with his musical contributions to the animated 2013 musical Saving Santa with Tim Conway and Tim Curry, Grant started his career as a child actor and dancer in the 1980s. Cast in Jim Henson and Frank Oz's The Dark Crystal at the age of seven in 1982, which was the same year that he appeared on stage in Danton's Death at the National Theatre, Grant continued acting, playing a number of lead roles in high-profile productions on London's West End opposite co-stars like Daniel Day-Lewis, Brian Cox, and Judi Dench. Leaving school at 16, he performed in the original West End production of Sondheim's Into the Woods and went on to study acting at the Central School of Speech and Drama. Always playing, writing, and working on music in the background, whether with a band or solo as a singer-songwriter, when he performed in his now-frequent collaborator Nicholas Heitner's original production of Miss Saigon, Grant wrote his first musical and stopped acting to concentrate on composing full-time. Most famous for the smash hit One Man, Two Governors for Nicholas Heitner and starring James Corden that ran for over three years in the West End on Broadway and played internationally, Grant has written dozens of scores since for the Royal Shakespeare Company, the BBC, and others. I am thrilled to talk to him about his career, music, and more today on Watch with Jen. Welcome, Grant. All right. Well, thank you so much. So I'll just dive in. So Grant, how are you doing and how are you adapting to pandemic life? Well, I'm doing very well, thank you. It's been a really strange few months, hasn't it? I mean, I I live I live like up a mountain in the middle of nowhere on the border of Wales and England, surrounded by sheep and trees. <laughs> and, and that's it. So when we went into kind of lockdown in the UK and we weren't allowed to see anyone, it was, you know, business as usual up here. It didn't look any different at all. You know, it was exactly the same, just the sheep wandering around. And, you know, it, it, it was all, it, there was no difference. I don't see anyone anyway. I live in um, isolation in you know, the best of times. Mm-hmm. So that was fine, but it was, what work was very, very strange. Um, I had a couple of projects lined up. I was about to start writing um, for a, a music for a play, um, a big play. Actually, we've been working on it a while. We've done a couple of workshops, and that obviously was about to start. It was start to start rehearsals in about ten weeks' time, and obviously that wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one really wants to say that's not going to happen. You know, this is slightly strange. And then the other project I was working on at the time when lockdown started was. Um, a ballet that I'm writing the score for. Um, my first, I've done ballets before, but this is my first one with a full orchestra, completely acoustic orchestra. 
wow. um, playing live every night. Um, massive, a lot of writing, you know, it's um, a mm -hmm. full two act ballet. And I was just on my second draft of it, middle of the second draft when the when the lockdown happened. And that was really difficult because, you know, life continued as normal and I continued writing as best yeah. I could. But you know what it's like, writers and, uh, you know, composers and, and everyone like that, we're all looking for distractions at the best of times to stop us doing our work. And this was one almighty distraction. <laughs> it um, really was. Yeah, so it was really tough to kind of just keep going, especially when you're thinking, God, I don't know when this thing is actually going to go on. You know, when is yeah. when are we actually going to, it's supposed to be on, it's supposed to be opening just about now, actually, this month. Oh, wow. Um, so obviously it's we're, we're, we, it's now rescheduled for next September, but okay. uh, so that was slightly strange. And then there's a few weeks of downtime and then it's picked up actually again. I'm now working on a couple of um, TV projects. So oh, nice. I've kind of found, found a path into stuff that it can continue, you know, during the, during these socially distanced times, but it's a very strange, it's a very strange thing. It really is. Well, looking over your incredible bio and credits, my first thought beyond, of course, sheer awe at like, wow, what hasn't he done, was that your career seems to have two equally impressive acts. There was the beginning of your professional life, which started when you were very young as an actor, and then your segue into music in your teenage years and now into adulthood. I'd love to talk about both with you, but starting off, how did you get involved in theatre and what was acting like at age seven? Well, so I, I mean, I was dancing from the age of three. Oh, so wow. that, I actually started really, really young because my sister was a dancer and okay. both my sisters went dancing lessons and I used to just kind of dance around. <laughs> and, you know, my mum put me on. We had this. I was born in 1974 and in, in 1977 it was the Queen's Silver Jubilee. Okay. A big year for punk rock and the Queen. And um, there were kind of street parties all over the country. And I was forced into a, a leotard and put on the stage and told to sing a song um, <laughs> dressed as a cat, which I did. And I think from then I wanted to kind of perform. So I was dancing as a, as a very, very young kid. And then that turned into modelling. Okay. Doing kind of, um, you know, catalogues, cardigans and jumpers and school uniforms and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then at the age of seven, um, I had by that time, I had a couple of agents and all of this kind of stuff. And I started going for more acting auditions. And that okay. turned into uh, my kind of first proper year of acting when I was seven, which was walking into audition for Jim Henson and Frank Oz. Um, at Muppet headquarters in Hampstead. Um, oh my goodness! Audition for the Dark Crystal, which I ended up doing, um, and at the same year working at the National Theatre in um, a play, a, a very very serious political play called Danton's Death. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so, and and from there on, it, it kind of went really. I, I I then got the acting bug and continued to work as a as an actor throughout my childhood and when I went end up going to theater school and stage school and stuff mm -hmm. uh, and yeah that it was I absolutely loved it I mean 
at the age of seven doing the Dark Crystal, you know, I was a big, big Muppets fan. At Me the age too. Of yeah. And the weird thing, I'm thinking about it recently, thinking it's quite strange for a kid at that young to know I knew the Muppet performance, you know, even though they never appeared on the TV. Mm-hmm. I knew who Frank Oz was. I knew the significance of Frank Oz and, and Jim Henson and Dave yeah. Golds and all of those guys, Jerry, you know, uh, um, Jerry Nelson and all of those performers. So to walk into the place to audition for the Dark Crystal, not, not only seeing these extraordinary creatures in the creature workshop and trying on the mark, I, I basically um, I was one of a couple of actors playing Jen the mm-hmm. main girlfriend when he was walking around and, and running around. Um, so I had to try on a mask of Jen and all this kind of stuff. And I remember walking past the Landstriders and the Skeksis and stuff. But there were also kind of busts of Kermit and Piggy around. And, oh, and my gosh. <laughs> it was just extraordinary. It was just magical. So to have to, to be kind of catapulted into the, that kind of fantasy world was amazing. And then... Uh, on the other hand, to be on the stage at the Olivier Theatre at the National with phenomenal actors in a really difficult mm-hmm. political play, I just loved it. And I, I, I didn't understand the politics of it, but I used to sit side of stage and watch it every night and, and love being kind of transported to revolutionary France and stuff. That is so cool. Well, you were in both plays and musicals at a young age, and I know you always enjoyed music. Did you have a preference as a kid for one over the other, or did you like plays and musicals equally? Plays and musicals. Well, I um, I, I kind of liked both. I tended to do more musicals than plays, I think. Okay. Um, I loved, and I loved Sondheim, and I I was introduced to uh, Sondheim's work when I was about twelve, I suppose. I heard Sweeney Todd for the first <laughs> time, just absolutely loved that. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that same age, I was cast in um, a musical in the West End called March of the Falsettos by um, William Finn, which is a really, really important musical in, in my life. Talk, you know, it, it introduced me to the idea that musicals could be about serious grown-up subjects and um, the music could be really quirky and complicated and the characters... It, it, Musicals didn't have to be epic things. They could be five or six people, kind of family stories, again, political stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was obviously very lucky that he was there working with us um, because it was the first time the show had been done in in the UK. So I got to meet Bill Finn. Um, later, I got to meet Sondheim when I worked with on on, a, on, a, on the original cast of Into the Woods. Um, oh, my God. Again, he was, you know, <laughs> He was present there, so um, I wouldn't say we hung out, but <laughs> I got in the room and listened to, you know, listen to him working and stuff sure. and, and how he thought about things. And so I did, but then again, I I loved Shakespeare as well. You know, mm. I suppose I, I started um, really reading Shakespeare and understanding Shakespeare when I was about 14, 15. Um, and I loved it. I loved those Kenneth Branagh films that were out around then, you know, the Henry yeah, the Yeah, they were the best. <laughs> yeah, and his Hamlet, and I loved the way that he would speak the text and how modern mm-hmm. it felt. And 
I love those kind of the kind of epicness of those stories and the the scale of the drama. Um, I suppose that's the same in musicals as well. You know, it's everything is is elevated and heightened. It's not necessarily subtle. It's it's big kind of big passions and big stories, and I love that. Um, and then when I was fifteen, I I was very lucky, and I I got to be in um, Richard Eyre's production of Hamlet at at, at the National Theatre with oh, Daniel Davis and Judy Dench. Um, incredible. Yeah, and that was an incredible education. I was there for about 10 months um, doing the play. And again, just sitting side of stage every night, soaking it up, watching extraordinary actors work. Um, mm -hmm. And at that point, that was when I kind of decided to go to drama school and, you know, take it, take it seriously and trying to become a... Up until that point, I'd wanted to be a kind of song and dance man, a kind of... Okay like an all-rounder you know someone that um tap dances and sings and mm -hmm. an act and i think at that point 15 i wanted to do shakespeare and i wanted to be a kind of stage actor okay that's wonderful do you remember what was your first instrument and do you know how old you were when you wrote your first song um yeah i there were always instruments around the house my brother oh, okay. is very musical so he had, although like me, completely self-taught. So um, he had a piano, Not maybe before I was born, there was a piano in the house, there was a harmonium in the house. He had drum kits in the house. He had guitars in the house. And at some point that, that turned into a kind of home organ. We had this home organ, like, mm -hmm. you know, two manuals and the foot pedals. Oh playing, yeah, playing my grandma had one of those. <laughs> I yeah. used to love playing it, yeah. A great kind of you know easy listening bossa nova type of instrument and mm -hmm. um i used to play around on this thing and i went to organ lessons for a, a probably a couple of years okay um and got quite good but my ear was better than my reading so i wasn't very good at reading i would read it once and then just learn it and then just kind of improvise around it so i suppose i was 11 12 at that point um mm -hmm. and i had about six months of flute lessons as well at school and then at 13 i got a guitar for christmas an acoustic guitar mm -hmm. and that so i i got it and in the morning by the evening i was playing a beatles tune uh, with my brother and we were singing beatles songs um and so that was my first then i kind of started writing songs i suppose okay so i played my first song I'd have written when I was about 14, 13, 14. I started a band with some school friends. Sure. And I was then in bands constantly until until about the year 2000, I suppose. I just always oh, wow. had a kind of a, a band going at some, you know um, on the side. Yeah. Well, I know you eventually moved on to music after writing your first musical. Was it hard to say goodbye to acting or how did you ex how did your experiences as an actor maybe help you in music? I think I got to the point in acting when I was I was in Miss Saigon, uh, the musical in London, uh -huh. and I'd done I'd done like one contract. I'd stayed for my second contract, so that was I'd been there about eighteen months, and I was really enjoying doing the show. Actually, still it was lots of fun. The guys in the dressing room were great fun. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've been writing this musical through that 18 months with my dresser, who's a oh, okay. talented man with lots of, he was an actor as well. Um, and we wrote this terrible, terrible musical together, <laughs> really, really like bad, and also completely unproducible, like <laughs> the most uncommercial, like just a death. Uh, but anyway, we wrote this thing. Got to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's there somewhere. My parents still love it. Ah, um, it, <laughs> it yeah, it's it. But so, I think I got sick of um, touring mm-hmm. as an actor and being away from home and being away from my wife and having to, yeah. you know, go to work at night and she was at work in the daytime. I'd never see her. Only see her on Sundays. Yeah. Um, and it was tiring as well. Being in one of those long-running shows actually was quite physically exhausting. Yeah. And I think I realised also that I was never going to play the kind of roles that I really wanted to play. I was oh. always going to be playing the kind of secondary characters, the kind of best friend, the whatever it was. And, and so the idea came actually to stop acting and start writing pop songs actually I thought we had this musical but no one was interested in that you know it was dreadful <laughs> we pointed to everyone no we barely got a reply so I thought I'd I'd try and get some publishing mm-hmm. and so I had no idea how to do that um there were these magazines you used to be able to subscribe to like like almost like a fanzine really um okay. that used to come once a month with like pitching opportunities which were just dreadful there was no opportunities but there were two publishing companies that advertised in those things that did take my songs. One in um, in Glasgow took some pop songs of mine and then one in Nashville oh, wow. took some songs of mine and then asked me to write some country songs. So I wrote <laughs> some country songs and had them published. I don't think they ever got done, but they you never know. If you're in Nashville, maybe there'll be a song, someone in some <laughs> bar, some dodgy country and western song. Um, so the publishing didn't do anything, you know, I had these songs published, but I was doing nothing. I had a band and then, and it nearly happened. We nearly got signed to Sony and we got great reviews in the enemy and the melody maker, but it never really happened. And then I got bored of the band and I had a kind of solo singer songwriter project going Uh again. I was flogging it to death. I was gigging, you know, five nights a week with me and my guitar going around the clubs in London Mm-hmm. Um, making records for my, you know, to sell to the to the people in the audience. Um, and at some point, in a kind of two years after I'd given up acting, um, there, there was a theatre in Fleet Street in London, in the city, called the Bridewell Theatre. Um, mm-hmm. It's not really there anymore. It's there as a venue, but it's not as a. It was a theatre company, the Bridewell Theatre Company, and they were kind of the. Um, they were the experts in musical theatre, like okay. specifically non-commercial musical theatre. So like <laughs> the stuff that had been done off-Broadway oh, um, gotcha. was really, really good, but like not commercial. It was never going to make anyone any money, but like really great shows. And they would bring these shows over that no one had heard of mm-hmm. and they would do them. And they heard my terrible musical and <laughs> they'd come in and have a chat. And they said, look, we're not going to do this show. Um, but we think there's some promise here in, in, in you as a writer, and both Ooh. of us. So can you 
come with us for a couple of days and just rewrite and see how you get on at rewriting. We take a section of the show. So we rewrote for a couple of days and, um, and that was fine. And we did a little reading of the show and all of this. And then he, uh, the, the um, artistic director, Clive Paget, asked me to write some songs for a show, a, a lunchtime show there mm-hmm. by David Ives. And I wrote three songs. Like that's my first job at writing songs to order. You know, they, the, the subject matter was, was predefined and it had to fit in between this scene and this scene. It was, a, it was absolutely um, to fit this particular moment. And sure. I, I said, yeah, that's, that, that would be great. So I wrote these three songs and I turned up on day one of rehearsals and I said, who's going to, who's doing these songs? Who's going to sing these songs? And he said, well, you're singing these. And I didn't even realize, I didn't realize I was supposed to be in the show as well. <laughs> so so I, I kind of unretired from acting okay. to be in this, um, to be in the show and, and sing these songs. And from that, um, they found a little bit of money and asked me to be the resident composer there, which I was for a year and a half. And, and through that process, wrote three musicals for them and wrote some music for their plays and, and started a career in, in writing music for, for theatre at that point, a musical theatre. Um, but the acting wasn't quite finished. There was a few things. A casting director saw me in this little play where I was playing guitar and, and had a, was casting a TV show and wanted um, wanted someone to play like a guitar tech or something. Mm-hmm. Guitar, someone who worked in a guitar shop. So they they thought, oh, Grant plays guitar. Let's let's get him in to do that. So I needed the money, and it was a one day's work. So I was like, yeah, that's fine. I'll be in your I'll be in your TV show <laughs> and you know, my my one line or whatever it was. And then the week before, they phoned up and said that scene's been cancelled now, so we don't need you to play guitar man in the shop. But do you want to play this junior doctor instead, Doctor Havers? He's oh. just got he's just got like one scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, you know, if it's just just it's just one day. So that, anyway, I did my one day, and the series got renewed, and then got renewed again, and they they liked this character, so they kept bringing him back. Oh, nice. So, yeah so I kept doing these one you know just a few days here and there on this tv show even though I was no longer acting um what show was that it was called William and Mary oh my goodness yes I saw a little of that years ago with uh Martin Clunes right that's it yeah very good okay yeah Yeah. that's it Martin Clunes and um and I worked with uh uh, Judy Graham who who was Mary in it she was a a midwife and he was a undertaker that was the premise um and yeah he had a band on the side so i was supposed to be to do with him and the band and then it turned out i was going to be uh, a kind of incompetent junior doctor um, <laughs> in the in the hospital so that was quite fun but um and occasionally i do get called upon to do not anymore but 10 years ago maybe if i was MDing a show or writing something then i'd always go uh, someone would drop out and oh grant can you play the priest and you know <laughs> so the acting thing but i but i don't like i i feel very uncomfortable with it now i had to do a, oh, we did a, really? a reading of a play um just before lockdown and just just kind of save hiring a load of we, we hired a load of actors but to fill in little parts here and there i just i, I was going to read in parts Mm-hmm. I thought I was just so nervous and I felt so uncomfortable doing it. It was, it was horrible. So, um, oh, no. I think, yeah, I think I've, uh, that's out of my system now. 
Oh, gotcha. Well, how did One Man, Two Governors come about? And what can you tell those who may be listening who haven't heard of the musical before? It is one, I have to admit, I've always wanted to see. So I'm really hoping that they broadcast it over here on PBS or something. Because, yes, I've always wanted to see it. I've heard some of the music, and it looked so much fun. Yeah, well, first of all, it's interesting. You said, I can't, um, I think, watch this space for whether it gets broadcast over there because okay. um, it, it may well do. It's, it, it still gets trotted out on the cinemas over here. You know, it's um, it was shown on, on YouTube during lockdown, which was great fun. I think. Oh, I can't, wonderful. I can't remember how many million people watched it. It was a lot of, a few million. It was a lot oh, of people. Um, but yeah, it came about because I'd worked at the National Theatre I think at that point, five times, four or five times, writing music for them. Mm-hmm. And they've quite often been songs, actually, as well as music for the plays, underscore and stuff. And the artistic director of the theatre, Nicholas Heitner, uh, is who I was always working with there. Yeah. And he called me into the office and said, I've got this show um, by Richard Bean, who I'd worked with previously, with Nick. We'd done a show called England People Very Nice. Mm-hmm. which had songs in it, but not songs that I wrote the lyrics to. So Richard had written those lyrics. Well, Richard and actually Nick Heitner wrote a lot of the lyrics in the end. Um, and I wrote the music. But this was the song, this was a show, and he all he said to me is it, it's it's a, a version of A Servant of Two Masters, this old kind of Commedia dell'arte, Carlo Goldoni play. We've got James mm-hmm. Corden playing the lead. Um, <laughs> we're going to set it in 1960s Brighton. So think of it like a carry-on film um, with a hint of the Beatles. And I said, oh, great. I can have like an orchestra doing like carry-on music. Do you, I don't know if you know the carry-on films, if, if they were big in no. America. No, I don't. They're a kind of really low-rent, um, kind of saucy British farce. Okay. Um, Kenneth Williams, Sid James, Barbara Windsor, Hattie Jakes, Jim Dale... It, um, kind of end of the peer humour. I don't know if that means anything either. It's a kind of variety, I suppose. Okay, but, sure. But quite coarse. Ah, um, gotcha. Not what you'd expect to find at National Theatre at all. <laughs> um, so he said, you know, it's going to be very funny, and we'll do it. But you can't have an orchestra. You've got to score it like the Beatles. Ah, gotcha. So you can have like three or four musicians, mm-hmm. and we might have one song in it. He was think he said. We might do like um, a Beverly Sisters number, which is the Beverly Sisters, like the um, English version of the Andrews Sisters. Okay. So the Beverly Sisters, like the Andrews Sisters, not as good and a bit, again, just a bit more kind of low rent. And they Uh had kind of, you always suspected they had British mob connections. And Uh (laughs) it it was just a little bit, something a bit wrong about it. And he showed me these videos of people it was a very, very fat man playing a xylophone in a tuxedo as if he wasn't even touching it. He was playing it so deftly. Oh, and wow. he showed me a video of this woman on point shoes tap dancing whilst playing a banjo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of these and someone playing these bulb horns like an, it was called a hornchestra. Mm-hmm. All this weird stuff. And then skiffle music and Beatles. Skiffle is like, um, it's, it's a bit like like jug band music um okay like it's based off early 
R&B mm. and blues and kind of uh, Muddy Waters and Woody Guthrie and stuff, Lead Belly. And this, uh, it, it was brought over to England in the 50s, late 50s, by a guy called Lonnie Donegan. And mm -hmm. it, we, we, it, was played, it was played over here kind of breakneck speed on terrible acoustic guitars, like a, um, a T-chest bass, which is just like a bass with a broom handle and a bit of string and mm -hmm. a washboard. And that was skiffle. And it was a okay. huge, it was a huge craze. And the Beatles um, started as a skiffle band and Led Zeppelin started as a skiffle <laughs> band. You know, all of these bands learned, their, learned how to do their thing playing these blues numbers, uh, three chords, you know, three yeah. chords and truth. Um, so this, was, this skiffle became a big part of the show, actually, and the, the lead character, because this show is set in 1963. Okay. It was a good metaphor for... The character who Lee James Corden's character played was a washboard player in a skiffle band, mm -hmm. and overnight the, the the band saw the Beatles and got rid of the washboard player and got themselves a drummer. So overnight, <laughs> he's a kind of man out of his time, and he's you know um, he's he's got no job, he's had nothing to eat, and that's how the story starts. So, but we were just going to have one song, and we had a few weeks before we started rehearsals, and I wrote a couple of songs and sent them to the director mm. I just said, you know, we could do something like this. We could have some songs in between these scenes. We could do something where, I'll, you know, we could do songs that are not on plot, mm. but, but are on theme. Yeah. So you could do a song about a man who's very, very hungry all the time, <laughs> but it wouldn't be sung from James's point of view, even though he's hungry all the way through. It would be, someone else talking about their father who was you know, mm -hmm. extremely always it, it's called that was a song called mild man's a gannet um or there'll be a song about um a kind of a pair of cross-dressing twins because there's identical twins in the show and one of them has to dress as a man the girl has to dress mm -hmm. as a man to part as her twin um so we have oh, we have a song called the brighton line um mm -hmm. The show is set in Brighton, and they had all these kind of references in the in the play um, that I could make into skiffle songs that felt like they already existed and had just been. We just kind of found these songs. Yeah. <laughs> so Nick said, "Yeah, just write as many as you can, and we'll find a way of getting them all in." Oh, wow. And I, I was going to um, play in the band. I was going to MD the show. Mm -hmm. And again, we got to this point two weeks into rehearsals where I said, who's going to sing these songs? And he said, well, you'll have to sing them. <laughs> so I ended up fronting the band for a year and a half um, and, and playing about 12 instruments in it, I think. Um, and oh, wow. the actors on stage came on and they sang some songs with us as well. James Corden played the xylophone and <laughs> Chris played the orchestra, And we got, we got all of this stuff in. And, um, yeah, it was an amazing show. And then obviously it, it, it played at the National to sold out then it toured then it played in the west end massive um west end theater then transferred to another west end theater and came to broadway um and it still is is playing around the world but we did do like an nt live of it when it was mm -hmm. at the national theater in, the, in its first few months um and that does get um that does get broadcast and um yeah, if you if you subscribe to uh, PBS, then keep keep a lookout for it. I would say. Okay, cool. Thank you. 
Well, obviously, I focus mostly on film, but I love music. I played it very badly growing up and did musicals as a kid and then worked as a music critic. So I am especially interested in scores uh, whenever I watch anything. And I know you've scored like every medium. So does your approach differ from one to another? Where do you like to begin to when it comes to film and TV? I think I begin because I come from a theatre background. Mm-hmm. I tend to begin with script, and I okay. think what the um, what writing for theatre has given me um, is a different way of looking at scripts, because in theatre we're dealing with scripts all the time, mm-hmm. and we've got a four week rehearsal process, and I can't write anything during the first week because there's nothing to watch there's nothing to you know they're just exploring in the second week I'll I'll pop into the rehearsal room watch a bit start writing in the third week I'll get most of my writing done and then Mm -hmm. in the fourth week I tend to have to record it and then it's done it's baked so you have to be able to guess what a scene is going to need before the actors know what they're going to be doing or sometimes before the director knows what what he or she wants Sure. And you're going to have to write something that is going to work, not now, when if they did the scene now, it wouldn't necessarily work, but where they, you have to predict where they're going to get to. Oh. Um, and write for that. And then with theatre, of course, it has, to, it has to be something that will work for the whole run, even when they speed up, you know, six mm-hmm. weeks in and they're getting bored and, the whole, and they've lost 10 minutes off the play. These cues still have to work. So I think... Being in a room with a director and working off scripts are the two things that I've taken from theatre. I approach, I don't think I approach them any different particularly. The the method of delivery is is very different, obviously. Mm -hmm. And in theatre, the words are the thing. You know, you're all absolutely in the service of the word and the writer. have to be very, very careful about volume of music in theatre going under dialogue. Um, I'm lucky and I work with directors who really, really like music and like to use music. And so I do get to do underscore and um, lots of underscore and stuff. But it, it can be the case that in theatre you're doing a lot of scene change music. Sure. And not, and not a lot of um, underscore. So mm-hmm. music in, in film and TV is, is, you know, fulfills a different function. But that's that's not to say that, that theatre has been getting more and more kind of filmic over the years, and the and the techniques have have mm-hmm. got closer and closer. I think one of the things that's a big big difference that I learned um, between film, TV, and theatre is that in theatre I'm really only dealing with one person, mm-hmm. which is the director. You know, yes. um, sometimes I'll have to listen to the producer. But it's very, very rare. It, it tends to be all my notes coming from one person. Okay. Whereas in film and TV, especially film, they're coming from all over the place. Notes are coming from all over oh, the place. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, and, and from every executive and everyone has an opinion and those opinions often don't match up and, and just trying to find your way to the, to the note. <laughs> Happy medium. Yeah, yeah. It's really, that, that I think is really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, but I really love, what I love about the TV and, and film stuff that I've done is 
that it's fixed or nearly fixed. It's not. It's not so much fixed anymore. Again, I think that's something that's changed over the years. Is you know, pictures used to be locked, mm. and and now they're kind of latched, or or you know, loosely loosely bolted, but they're not like locked anymore because people just can keep tweaking the edit and mm-hmm. uh, shifting things around up until the very very last minute. So. But you do at least have something to respond to um, visually, whereas I just don't in theatre. It, it's it's rare. I have to try and guess what it's going to be. And I, I like that in film and TV, I can score to the frame, whereas mm. in theatre I have to score to the minute because it's going to shift. You know, things are going to change on stage. Uh-huh. every night it's not going to be the same whereas if i want to have something sync or something play in a in a in a gap in dialogue or want to write around dialogue or whatever it is i can really get into that and make that work and i mm-hmm. I, I like that kind of um jigsaw puzzle element of it that's yeah. that really appeals to me sounds like it who are some of your favorite film composers do you have any scores you think anyone not just maybe those thinking of going into your field should listen to in particular i well i really like i really like michael giacchino okay of the current of, you know the current crop of composers mm-hmm. i just think he's brilliant what he can do with even a couple of notes i really like um i really like melodic scores so Obviously, growing up, John Williams yeah. was God and still is. I still mm-hmm. think that those those scores are just extraordinary. And, and I I like scores that have um, melody and, and you know themes and light motifs. So John Williams to me still is just a just a, obviously a god. Um, Michael Giacchino, I think, is is absolutely brilliant. I love how much fun he seems to have with his scores, mm-hmm. you know, even down to the naming of the cues. Um, he always puts these puns in every cue title, you know, on the soundtracks and how much fun he has in the studio. You know, it always looks like it's a blast. And the same with Dan Pemberton, actually. I like, I love his scores. and I love how inventive he is with, um, with studio technology and playing around with that. But what Michael Giacchino can do with just a couple of notes, I'm thinking about actually his Planet of the Apes scores, okay. and and just there's a theme in that that's two or three notes, and it just manages to do everything with mm. with two or three notes, a theme that's very very like obviously his up score is extraordinary, and what oh, he does yes. in that uh, mm-hmm. that that cue. You know, which is like which is like the John Williams um, ET flying cue, really. I mean, it has that mm-hmm. kind of you know, it's as it's as big as that. Where, but but that John Williams flying cue is fifteen twenty minutes. That cue, mm-hmm. um, that cue at the beginning of Up, where they grow older, I think it's four minutes. It's really short. It yeah. feels like you know, it does so much work. It's extraordinary, and then that's like a two theme score Up. Mm-hmm. three themes at most it tends to be the same tune and, and how he can reapproach that theme and bend it and twist it and make it you know amazing um yes thomas newman is oh. someone 
who I adore very much. Yeah. Now that's that's so that's not so much on the melodics, um, you know, uh, scores, but what he can do with texture and mm -hmm. with ambiguity. I th he is an expert at writing cues that don't tell you too much. Mm. It's, it's utterly brilliant. If you look at them, you know, there's and, and how rarely he goes to a third, because if he went to a minor third, that would be sad or melancholy or negative. And if it would be major third, that would be too happy. That would be that would be telling you too much. Mm. Um, I think he's brilliant. Um, Alexander Desplat. Oh, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> I just love his scores. I really do. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the first one I heard would have been King's Speech, which I love. Mm. But Coco of Chanel, I think, is utterly brilliant. The Ghost Writer is utterly brilliant. I really love his score to um, Rise of the Guardians. Oh, interesting. Which, which is um, an animated film that didn't do too well. Mm -hmm. um, Peter Ramsey directed it, who I think is fantastic, and who co-directed the um, Into the Spider-Verse uh, mm -hmm. film, which also has a fantastic score by Daniel Pemberton. Yes. Um, but that score to um, Rise of the Guardians is utterly brilliant. And there's a song in it as well called, uh, is it called In Dreams? When I Dream, Dream in the title, I can't remember. And it is absolutely beautiful score, a song sung by Renee Fleming on the on the recording. Mm. Um, so I guess those are some of my favourites. I mean, in terms of John Williams, God, there are just so many that mm -hmm. I go back to time and time again. I can't yeah. really pick. I can't really pick. But I tell you who else I absolutely loved growing up was um, John Morris, ah. who did the Mel Brooks films. Mm -hmm. um, and he did also um, The Elephant Man, which uh, oh, yes. is a fantastic, fantastic score. Mm -hmm. And his um, violin theme for Young Frankenstein um, is absolutely beautiful, just plays it absolutely straight. It's the mm -hmm. most fantastic melody, you know, and, and well, that whole film, I think, is played you know, it's only just the, the tone of it is just spectacular yeah. <laughs> because it's almost like Gene Wilder's walked onto set and the wrong actors have turned up, and he's got to try and get through <laughs> the film regardless. Very and, true. You know, you know, if you'd have come the day before, it would have been fantastic, but everyone's yeah. had to kind of shift up a part, and um, and the score does the same thing really. It takes itself seriously, and it's it's rather wonderful. Yeah. Well, I don't want to keep you all day. So last question. Let's say that there are some aspiring composers listening to this. What is one piece of advice that you have for them? I think be your own worst critic ah. is my advice. I okay. think take, really listen, really keep your eyes open, keep your ears open all the time. Really delve into what you're looking at, what you're listening to. Mm -hmm. really pick it apart and then apply that to your own work and be hard on yourself. Okay. Be really, really hard on yourself. Um, <laughs> you're going to get terrible notes from people that make no sense. And, <laughs> you know, if you've already given yourself the worst notes, then you'll deal with them well. But I think, you know, if you get the chance to be in a room with people 
doing doing making art mm-hmm. doesn't they don't have to be music or, or composers or musicians um i was very lucky that i got in the room a lot of times with fantastic actors and great writers and great directors mm-hmm. and watched them and i think i learned more about music from watching an actor a fantastic actor tackle a piece of shakespeare or a fantastic director pick apart a scene or stage a scene change mm. uh, and by looking at how they approach the whole thing yeah taking that apart and then applying it to my own uh, craft is where i kind of learnt all my tips and tricks from because at the end of the day everyone whether it's film tv or theater everyone is just trying to tell the same story yes and i think if you can if you know what that story is if you can look at what everyone else is doing pick it apart and mm-hmm. understand what page they're on then you've got a really good chance of writing the right piece of music for that scene that is perfect advice. Well, I want to thank you so much, Grant, for taking the time to do this. It was so much fun talking to you, and I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jen. Great to speak to you. This is Jen Johans of FilmIntuition.com or Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen and Friends. 